This evening I would like to start trying to put this practice we're introducing and we will be developing it through the week in different ways into the context of the Buddha's own life and experience to see if we can get back to where this tradition of ideas and practices um, has its origin. I think that's useful because the meditation we teach, although it sounds perhaps quite pragmatic, quite straightforward, is nonetheless not um, reducible simply to a set of exercises or techniques out of context. A practice such as, for example, uh, sitting still and watching the breath can, and perhaps would, to an outsider, someone with no interest, say, in, in Buddhism or meditation or religion or spirituality, appear to be a very odd thing to want to do. I've often imagined a thought experiment in which we would take the Gaia House van, if we had one, into the streets of Newton Abbott and um, kidnap at random people on the high street into the back of the van, race them over here, bring them into this room and then tell them to sit down cross-legged on the floor and watch their breath for 45 minutes. My hunch is (laughs) that um, most of our guinea pigs would find this uh, a rather weird thing to want to do. Because they wouldn't have a reason for doing it. It would be completely without context. And perhaps the situation nowadays has changed and people would be more alert to what meditation might be about. But it's a an example, I think, that shows us that our, our practice, a word that we often use if we are following this kind of path, although for us is very much a struggle about learning to be more focused, learning to be more still, learning to find a good posture, to be more aware in these things, is not actually only about that. It can't be reduced to a set of um, exercises for 30 minutes a day. But in order for such an exercise to be meaningful, we have to be able to answer the question, why do you do that? Why do you sit in meditation? Why do you go on retreat? And each of us, I suspect, will have our own um, answer to that question. In fact, I suspect many of us have had to answer that question when a rather puzzled and worried parent or spouse, um, when you come back looking a bit kind of glazed-eyed and happy from a retreat, will say, but um, why, what is it that you get out of this, dear? I think that's a very interesting question. And I think it's a question that is well worth asking ourselves from time to time, particularly if we find the practice does become mechanical, if it just becomes repetitive, if it just becomes another routine, something that we ritualistically do twice a day or a weekend a month or something. And we might have had this experience that after a while we kind of lose the, uh, we lose sight of what it is deep down that is moving us to do this. So when we are asked, or when we ask ourselves, you know, why do I do this? The answer will be very revealing. The answer will very often show our wider, for all of us, we're not doing this just for um, entertainment. It was a toss-up between going for a week in Mallorca or watching my breath at Gaia House. I suspect we do this because it means something quite important to us. 
even as a beginner, we're probably exploring the possibilities of meditation for reasons that go beyond the actual descriptions and practices of meditation itself. And a simple answer might be, well, I meditate because I want to find some peace of mind. That might be one. But I suspect that for most of us, and certainly for myself, and perhaps I should just speak for myself, it has to do with questions of meaning. It has to do with trying to understand what it is to be a human being. It has to do with questions of of life and death. What is this all about? And it's here, I think, that we can get a, um, a link back to the story of the Buddha himself. Why did he set out on this path? Why did he not stay in his family home in Shakya, in northwest India, and pursue what would have been a relatively comfortable life. You know, he just had a child. Surely he should have felt some responsibility there. He was an important person in his society. He had a future pretty much mapped out by tradition, by loyalty to his clan, his family. And yet he chose to do something else. Now, unfortunately, there is very little in the um, early canonical texts, uh, which I would simply summarize as the Pali Canon, the texts collected in the language called Pali, which is a form of Sanskrit, that tell us much about his motives. There's the famous um, story, of which I'm sure all of you are familiar, of his being born as a prince in this kingdom. He's to inherit the throne. His father is worried that, according to the prophecy of a sage when he was a baby, he might um, leave home, become a, a wandering sage. So to prevent that, he incarcerates him in a palace But one day the young man says, what's outside the palace walls? Now, that story is not historical. Um, It's a legend. You do find it in the Pali Canon, but not in reference to uh, Siddhartha Gautama. It's a myth the Buddha tells about an earlier Buddha in an earlier age. Siddhartha Gautama was in fact the eldest son um, of the head of an oligarchic republic. In fact, a failing oligarchic republic. Not a kingdom, but a small um, confederation of tribes and clans living um, now what would be the Nepalese border in North India. Um, already incorporated into an expanding kingdom to the west. And in fact the prospects didn't look that great at the Buddha's time. Um, That way of life was being um, supplanted by the emergence of monarchy, which was in turn made possible by the economic surpluses of the Gangetic Basin of that period, which was giving rise to cities, which was allowing uh, kings to maintain standing armies, where urban life and a mercantile class was becoming um, increasingly powerful and important in those societies. The Buddha was born at a time of enormous social and economic and political transition. So he wasn't born as a prince in a palace with great prospects at all, but rather he was born into a very uncertain period of Indian history. And I think perhaps already there we might sense a resonance with our own 
culture, our own times, the uncertainty of capitalism, of nowadays particularly the future of life on earth threatened by climate change, global warming. We live too in uncertain times. We live at a time when for many of us our ancestral religions no longer answer the questions that are perhaps most urgent and most silent for us. You know, what's all this about? What am I doing on this earth? In a world that we now know from images taken from outer space is a ball, a beautiful ball, of rock and water and a thin layer of atmosphere hurtling around a sun in a tiny little solar system inside a Milky Way, our galaxy, which is one of millions of galaxies in the universe. The whole way that we have come to see ourselves is one in which enormous questions begin to emerge. What is all this about? What on earth is going on here? And the consolations of religion very often don't work anymore because in so many ways our religious traditions, including Buddhism, are premised on a very different sense of the kind of world um, that was lived in at the time of their beginning. I'm saying all of this really just as an example of how our own situation in, what in some ways mirrors that of the Buddha. A time of uncertainty, the future, my role in it, my children's role in what will come. These are things that are, are not at all um, assured. We can't be certain, as in traditional societies, that generation after generation the same patterns and cycles of life would repeat and continue. I think for many of us we've lost that now. And it could be that at the root of our interest in um, a religious tradition such as Buddhism, we're looking for answers here to some of these uh, deep existential questions um, that we can't find or haven't found in our own tradition. And again, how do you explain the, uh, the interest in and the popularity of meditation retreats and Buddhist centers and temples? Why? why? Why is that of interest? Why is it of interest now? I suspect because it's a response to questions that we can't answer or we're looking for answers. Now, in the, the one text where the Buddha does talk about his own story, which is called the Arya Pariyasana Sutta, uh, which translates as the Discourse on the Noble Quest, he sketches the trajectory of his own life and starts with a reflection on what, on what it was that motivated him uh, to leave home, to abandon his family. I'm not going to read out the text, but to summarize it, he basically says, look, I'm someone who is subject to birth and to sickness, to aging and to death. How can I find security and solace and understanding and well-being by relying on other things which are likewise subject to birth and sickness and aging and death. In other words, how as, a, as, a, as an impermanent, suffering, uh, confused being can I resolve my primary uh, uncertainties and anxieties by clinging on to other things which I know too won't last 
are also in the end going to lose their glamour. They will fail me. Either they will be destroyed or they will die or they will change or I will grow old and die. And I'll grow old and die holding on to things that ultimately can't provide me with the kind of deep uh, security or insight or um, we might call it uh, salvation that I seek. So the Buddha says, how therefore can I find the deathless? Now we have to be careful here. He uses the word the deathless, the, the, uh, the amata, um, in many ways simply as a metaphor, as a, as a term that was in common use in his time, which in our time would be something like ultimate meaning or salvation or heaven or something like that. Everlasting life, we might say. The word the deathless we find already in use in the writings or the texts that precede the Buddha himself. It's a common term in the Upanishads, of which I'm sure many of you are familiar. These are the um, collections of uh, insights and sort of proto-philosophical ideas religious ideas that were preserved and developed by the priestly caste, the Brahmins, um, in the century or two or three prior to the Buddha's birth. So when he says, I'm seeking the deathless, he's using the shorthand of his time. How can I save myself? How can I find liberation or enlightenment or freedom or whatever word we might spontaneously use in a comparable context. And so again, a bit like us perhaps, he too sets out in search of a practice, a philosophy, a teacher. And the text records how he goes and studies in two different communities, one belonging to a man called Alara Kalama, another to a man called Udaka Ramaputta, about whom we know very little, apart from the fact that they taught um, forms of meditation that entailed deep, um, formless concentration. Alara Kalama taught a meditation called um, uh, the, the, the contemplation on the base of nothingness. The Buddha doesn't describe what that is. But it's very likely that it's a practice connected to the, uh, the Vedanta or the Upanishadic tradition. A practice that seeks to um, focus the mind, to train the mind to go beyond the world of appearance. And um, break through to an experience of Brahman, which we can translate as the absolute or the divine or God, not understood in a, in a monotheistic sense, um, as we might be familiar, but really as a kind of impersonal absolute reality that lies behind um, the confusing veil of appearances. In other words, our, our physical experience, our emotional, our mental experiences, the experiences of the world, the phenomena of the world, what were often summarized in a term called Nama Rupa, name form, or name and form. So it's, it's, very, it's very probable that the Buddha learned forms of meditation that aimed at stripping away the uh, confusions of the phenomenal world in order to achieve a kind of spiritual union 
with um, with God, with Brahman, with the Absolute. And it's through such a merging that one is liberated or freed from having to be reborn, from having to keep circling within sangsara. In other words, the cycle of birth and death. That was, at the Buddha's time, very much the uh, the paradigm or the or the, uh, the the template if you wish of what spiritual or religious life was about but the Buddha did these practices but found that they didn't actually resolve his primary questions in other words he achieved apparently great proficiency in being focused on the base of nothingness but when he came out of that contemplation he found himself back where he had started in other words in the painful condition called being human for him these meditations were not a a resolution of his deepest questions but a kind of Um, suppressing of those questions and a copping out rather than a true addressing of what it meant to be human so he abandoned those practices he then adopts practices of asceticism and he describes all of the extraordinary punishments that he puts himself to And there too he finds that no matter how much he uh, mortifies his flesh, which again is a practice we find in most religions, um, that of somehow uh, denying the desires of the body in the hope of achieving some transcendence, that that too didn't work. He gave that up as well. And what we see, in fact, in this story is that the Buddha is, 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 is constantly finding himself in a situation um, in which he experiences a certain anguish, a certain dissatisfaction, a confusion, a meaninglessness. He tries something else, that doesn't work. He tries something else, that doesn't work. This Arya Pariyasana, this noble quest, is again, I think, a very useful um, metaphor. Perhaps it's more than a metaphor uh, for our own explorations and investigations and searchings in this life. And I guess probably all of us have, have been through different kinds of practices. We might have done yoga and then we've gone on to do kundalini. We didn't find that terribly interesting. And then we went on to do zen. And then the zen master turned out to be a bit weird so we went and did something else. And then we joined an Advaita Vedanta community. I mean this is such a common story nowadays. Especially in, in circles such as this. We're, we're looking for something. We're seeking something. We get glimpses of it. We get a hint that that's the way to go. But again, very often, we find that we hit up a kind of against another kind of dead end. Or we find that whatever questions such a practice or philosophy does resolve only give rise to questions that we previously hadn't thought of. And so we go on. There's very much a sense of quest. It's worth remembering, too, that the word quest is at the root of the word question or questioning. We're asking ourselves something. And in some paradoxical sense, it's this capacity to become a question for ourselves that is the dynamism, it's the motor the engine that moves us forward into what we don't know. 
into what we sometimes call the unknown. So having reached a certain point of, um, of crisis, a kind of impasse, a point at which he really was stuck, the life with his farming family wasn't fulfilling him, nor were the spiritual communities that he had lived in, nor was his experiment in self-denial of any value. So what do you do next? When you've exhausted all, the, all those possibilities. What the Buddha's life, I think, illustrates is also um, the beginnings of a kind of individuation. Here was a man, quite uncharacteristically for his time, who was not prepared to simply go along with the conventional um, practices and beliefs of his day. He found that they didn't actually uh, meet his needs. So he looks further. He goes on further. And finally, as we all know from endless numbers of books on the subject, he sits beneath a tree and decides that he will not get up again until he has achieved some kind of resolution. And this is called a bodhi or sambodhi in Sanskrit, usually translated as enlightenment, but probably more accurately rendered as awakening. That's what the word more literally means. He got to a point where he woke up in other words, he broke through the veil of his own metaphorical sleep, deep sleep, dream, and as though his eyes opened for the first time, he understood something that was adequate to resolve his particular dilemma. In other words, the dilemma of his own birth sickness, aging, death. Now I'd like to look at the passage um, in which he describes that experience, his awakening, as we find it in the, um, the Noble Quest, this discourse. I'll read it out, it's, it's not very long. He says, this Dhamma, I'm not going to translate it, this Dhamma I have reached is deep, hard to see, difficult to awaken to, quiet and consequent, not confined by thought, subtle, felt by the wise. But people love their place, they delight and revel in their place. It is hard for people who love, delight and revel in their place to see this ground, that this conditions that, conditioned arising. And it is also hard to see this ground, the stilling of all formations, the relinquishing of all bases, the fading away of craving, desirelessness, stopping, nirvana. Were I to teach the Dharma and others were not to understand me, that would be tiring and vexing for Now, um, this is not an easy passage, and I've made it particularly more tricky by translating it literally. Some of you might have heard me read this before, or you might be familiar with the passage. Um, 
which tends to put it into Buddhist speak. Um, for example, um, this is Bhikkhu Bodhi, Bhikkhu Nyanamoli's translation, which is probably the most uh, um, orthodox one. Uh, this Dharma that I have attained, he says, is profound, hard to see, hard to understand, peaceful and sublime, unattainable by mere reasoning, subtle to be experienced by the wise. But this generation delights in worldliness, takes delight in worldliness, rejoices in worldliness. It is hard for such a generation to see this truth namely specific conditionality, dependent origination. And it is hard to see this truth, namely the stilling of formations, relinquishing of attachments, destruction of craving, dispassion, cessation, nibbana. And if I were to teach the Dhamma, others would not understand me, and that would be wearying and troublesome for me. Now, what is uh, curious about um, that translation is that it interprets the key terms in ways that conform to later Buddhist orthodoxy, particularly Theravada Buddhist orthodoxy, but actually misses and completely obscures uh, the primary um, metaphors that he's... um, using. It says, for example, this Dhamma that I have attained, attainment, whereas in fact the text says, this Dhamma that I have reached, adigato, this place that I have got to. It's not something I've attained, as opposed to somewhere where I have arrived. So the Buddha's awakening is very much about a shift in his condition. He's arrived somewhere. And of course this is implicit in the whole idea of a quest, pariesana, a search, is that you're going somewhere, you're looking for something, you're on the move. He suddenly finds himself, as we might say today, in a totally different space. And this he calls the Dhamma. I'm not going to translate that word. Which is deep, he says, hard to see, difficult to awaken to. Again, the translator here says, hard to understand. Again, making it a cognitive Act something you know, but the term doesn't say that. It's it's the same word as bodhi, upa buddha, or something. He's woken up to this. It's quiet and consequent. It has implications. It's not confined by thought. It's not just an idea. It's not something you can just rationalize. It's not just a concept. It goes beyond anything that we can adequately um, conceptualize and represent. It's subtle. He says it's um, experienced by the wise, but the word again is vedanayo, which means felt. The same as in vedana, feeling. It's something... It's sensed, it's felt in the body. It's not just some, again, knowledge. It's more than that. But people love their place. They delight and revel in their place. Whereas here we have, but this generation delights in worldliness. Worldliness. Now the word for play, the the word uh, that is being translated here is alaya. Alaya is a word that we actually all know. You've heard of the mountains near where the Buddha was born, the Himalaya, the Himalayas. (laughs) Oh, I saw the Himalayas. 
saw this wonderful mountain called K2. Himalaya means Himma in, in Pali Sanskrit means snow. And Alia means the place of snow, the foundation, uh, the support of the snow. I really don't understand why it's translated as worldliness. And again, it, it shows that the primary metaphor that runs through this passage is about a shift of place. It's having reached another place. And the problem, and he plays on this very cleverly, he says, but people love their place. They delight and revel in their place. What does that mean? What is your place? What is your ground? We could translate it that way. People love their ground. What they stand on. What somehow gives you your, your foundation in life. I think in this context, what we're talking about refers perhaps to the ego, to the self to me make it less abstract Stephen I'm particularly enthralled about my place my foundation my ground me or it could be more than that my body my thoughts my ideas my beliefs all the things that give me a place a location an identity. People are enthralled to that. And as long as you are locked into, or as the Buddhists would say, as long as you cling to your place, you're not going to see what the Buddha has seen. Because the Buddha has found another place from which to live. It is hard for people, he's it is hard for people who love, delight and revel in their place to see this ground. Get another metaphor of location. Whereas Bhikkhu Bodhi says, but it is hard for such a generation to see this truth. The word isn't word. I, I'd assumed until a month or so ago that the word here must be such a truth. But it's not. It's tanam. It means place, ground. Another metaphor, a synonym of place. Why is he playing with these images? Idam tanam, this ground. And then he says what this ground is. He says it's idapachayata. Difficult to translate. Bhikkhu Bodhi translates it as specific conditionality. Now the word specific isn't there. It's ida pachayata. Ida means this. But it can also mean that. Ida in Pali is called a deictic pronoun. Of which there are, I counted, 38 grammatical variations. which again makes it difficult to translate it into a language of which there is one grammatical variation. <laughs> this. But again, the emphasis is very explicit. So he means this conditioned. Another translator translates it as this, that conditionality. But a deictic pronoun in any language is like the word this, is pointing to something that is visible. This, as opposed to that. And pachayata means conditioned, caused by, brought about by. I would translate it as, this conditions that. That's the ground he's coming from. And he calls that a ground. Now again, there's a play here because in the Upanishads this term 
Tanam, or in its Sanskrit form, Adishtana, means foundation or ground, and it refers to Brahman. It refers to God, the absolute, the ultimate, the absolute. That's the ground in Vedic tradition, the source of all things, or what Paul Tillich calls the ground of being. The Buddha is very playfully substituting the idea of an absolute reality with the notion of a process of conditionality. This conditions that. This is very, very central to the Buddha's understanding. Now, in case um, this has been too abstract, let's put it into the context of our meditation practice what we've been doing here today and will continue doing through the week. We're not in this meditation trying to somehow break through the phenomenal experience of thinking, feeling, hearing sounds, breathing, in order to touch some ultimate ground, some absolute reality, whatever we might call it but we're rather pointing to a clear awareness of this and that, this moment of breath, that thought that is arising, this pain in my left knee, that memory I have of being on holiday 25 years ago with Aunt Jane at Paynton specific things and in that sense Bhikkhu Bodhi is right he's concerned with the specificity of ordinary phenomenal experience this is a total break with Vedanta with Upanishadic thought with a great deal of what um, different religions are ultimately concerned with something ultimate something absolute something irreducible the Buddha has come to a place in which he has seen or woken up to for the first time the sheer playful flux of conditions how nothing stands alone Nothing stands somehow independent or inherently, somehow in and of itself, like the ego feels to be. I feel as though I am somehow independent of any conditions. Intellectually, of course, I know that's not true, but deep down in my gut, in the core of myself, I experience myself as somehow autonomous, as separate, as disconnected. And that is the most real thing. That's my alaya, my place that I'm enthralled to. The Buddha's pointing to another place, another ground, in which everything generates something else. And that everything I experience is the consequence of what has happened in the past, of what is coming together in the complexity of each moment, linked by relationships, but also endlessly fluid. Nothing is standing still. Nothing is there to such an extent that we can hold on to it and gain some kind of security. There is no ground in that sense. And this is perhaps the paradox. What the Buddha calls idam this ground, turns out not to be a ground in the conventional sense. It's a groundless ground. 
which is actually similar to I oh, forget it. Um, so he then calls this. He says, "Ida pachayata paticha samudpada." Uh, this conditions that conditioned arising, dependent arising. Paticha samudpada. Things come about from conditions, and each condition is a specific thing that doesn't last and has no kind of essential identity because it vanishes. It arises out of conditions, remains temporarily, momentarily, in such a way that it generates something else. It's a flux. And in many ways, I think we can substitute as a kind of shorthand for this rather clumsy Buddhist jargon word, conditioned arising, simply life itself. Life. That's what life is. Life is an ongoing unfolding of events that are causally related and linked that are constantly giving birth, they're constantly from that flux and that flow of life itself. That the ego, although it appears to be somehow fixed, or the watcher, the observer, the, which we start, sometimes becomes a spiritual substitute for the ego, the thing that sort of seems to be constantly in the background looking at the show, that that too can't be found, can't be pinned down as anything specific, and certainly not as anything sort of permanent and absolute. And so much of this way of looking at life um, conforms, or let's say resonates, um, with the whole idea we now have of the... uh, the emergence of this of this cosmos, the explosion of the Big Bang, the um, unfolding and the expanding of this universe, the evolution of life. Now, the Buddha doesn't speak of these things. He almost certainly had no knowledge of that worldview. And again, that worldview too might be superseded one day. We don't know. But the quality of insight is very much of a similar order. It's about an understanding of process, about an understanding of unfolding, of one thing leading to the next, and no ultimate or absolute ground, some fixed transcendent point of consciousness is necessary. The Buddha is very consistent in this. This is the insight that he regards as the one that liberated him. Liberated him from his obsessions with um, his own self-identity. In other words, his egoism, his self-centeredness, his selfishness. And all of the desires and fears and hatreds and jealousies and attempts to control things and manipulate my mind and manipulate others. The whole of Buddhist psychology is founded on this insight. The whole way of life that the Buddha then goes on to um, explain and teach and embody is likewise a reflex, an outcome, a consequence of this core insight. So conditionality, we might summarize it as that, or contingency.
But it's not just that. It's not as though he's now just somehow understood something. And again, the words in this passage of understanding, there are no words such as understanding here or knowing. It's about being, finding, arriving at another place, having another ground, a very strange ground, because this ground can't be pinned down. It's not a ground in a curious way. And then he continues, but it's also very hard to see this ground, this tunnel, the stilling of formations, the relinquishing of bases. Again, another metaphor of place or ground. The fading away of craving, desirelessness, stopping, nirvana. So he explains here that his awakening was not just coming to see things from a radically new perspective, but in seeing things in that way, that also effected a profound change in his whole relationship to life. One that was no longer dictated by craving by um, what, what he calls the bases, the relinquishing of all bases. Bhikkhu Bodhi translates that as the relinquishing of all attachments, which is fair enough. Again, if you think about it, attachment is what ties you to something. But what's interesting in this more literal translation is that we haven't yet reached the language of psychology. Whereas in the orthodox translations, it's attachment, attainment, um, understanding, psychological operations. We're one level deeper than that. We're talking here in language that we might call more phenomenological. We're concerned with the primacy of experience before we interpret it philosophically or psychologically or religiously. There's something very, um, very raw about this language. It's about place. He's not talking about attachment. He's talking about my bases. In other words, what I'm tied to. What is the basis for my existence? How I'm based in the world the fading away of craving, desirelessness, stopping, nibbana. I'm going to go in the next talks into much more detail around all of these ideas, so I'm not going to go into that now. But the point is that his insight um, or his, his arriving at this ground of this conditions that, of conditional arising also brings to a stop certain patterns of relationship and behavior that he will subsequently explain as being the source of anguish and suffering and pain. And were I to teach the Dhamma and others were not to understand me, that would be tiring and vexing. In other words, I don't think people are going to get this. And he summarizes it in a verse. He says, Why should I now reveal what I reached with difficulty? This Dhamma is not easily awoken to by those in thrall to desire and hate. Those Colored by desire, covered by a mass of darkness, will not see what goes against the stream, subtle, deep, hard to see and fine. On thinking over this, monks, my mind inclined to inaction, not to teaching.
the, the, the key term here is that what he has experienced goes against the stream. Patisotagami. It, it's counterintuitive. It's not what we expect. And we have to understand this, obviously, in the context of his time and place, in the context of his religious culture. This is completely against the current of thinking and practicing of his period. He's, he's, he's embarking on something completely unfamiliar. He's awoken up to some he's woken up to something that is at odds with not only the religious culture of his time, but I think a great deal of religious culture, and I would add to that, much of Buddhism. I think one of the difficulties or one of the biggest obstacles we have in um, in understanding these uh, key texts is Buddhism. And we can see that just in the translation I read out here. It's already been turned into a kind of psycho-spiritual doctrine concerned with truth. Whereas in the original text, none of that language is there. So what I'm going to be doing over uh, the course of the next few days in these uh, in my evening talks will be to be going back to some of these core um, passages in the early canon, trying to unpack them, uncover them, in a way that we begin to get a feel for uh, the primacy of the language he's using. And I know this may be a bit tricky sometimes, and it might be a bit unfamiliar, but I think it's very revealing. And I also feel that it helps us understand what we're doing when we sit here. And I feel that one thing that I've always found with just sitting is that we are confronting where we are, our place, our ground, our foundation. And we're noticing as we still the mind and open our attention, how everything is in flux, how everything is conditional, coming, going, generating some other thought, some other feeling, some other experience. We enter into the flow of life, yet without any um, uh, necessity to find within that some kind of permanent ground some kind of spiritual place. But rather we allow ourselves to open to the sheer conditionality of things, the sheer contingency of things. And there's something both beautiful and also at times rather terrifying about that. It undermines us. It pulls the rug from beneath our feet. It challenges and it questions a great deal of what we intuitively assume ourselves to be and our life to be about. And that's not always going to be easy. It's certainly not always going to be comforting or consoling. But hopefully it might be more truthful. It might be a more honest and raw encounter with who we are and where we are. But I'll stop there. And I've spoken for the full hour, which doesn't leave us time for uh, discussion. But I promise you in the following uh, talks and also... Uh, in the mornings when I give the instruction we'll have time for uh, questions and answers and likewise in the small groups we'll be holding from tomorrow we can also use that to explore 
um, some of these ideas. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.